Okay, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter. Join me in standing, if you would, please, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Once more, we'll read the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 6, and um, we will begin at verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they were to fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars... It is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give to us grace in this day, that you would teach us how to love Christ and how to love each other. I pray, Father, that you would help us to minister the truth unto one another in a way that not only is true, but is loving. And Father, we ask that in the midst of this culture and this world in which we live where isolation has become the norm, that you would bind us together. Remind us, God, that we need this, that we need the community, we need the body of Christ. We need to lavish love upon one another, that Christ would not only be honored among us, but himself would be richly blessed by the love that flows between us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The act of laying on of hands has become somewhat obscure in this day. It is, however, a practice which has deep roots and powerful significance for those who are the people of God. It is, in a way, something that we do need to return to, although the Apostle says, let us move beyond these basic teachings. I think that it's something that's important, for in many places, we have left it behind in a manner that is neither appropriate nor healthy. While we want to leave behind false and outdated meanings and teachings, and we also want to be very careful to preserve purity, we also need to be mindful not to throw away that which is still valuable. In this day of frivolous litigation and the fear that accompanies it, as well as the abuses that have arisen in the name of God by false religions, we must proceed with care. But we must also not abandon that which was given to us by the Lord. Ministry is a hands-on practice. And it is appropriate for the church when done in purity and faithfulness. So the idea of the laying on of hands is something that we don't do so much. We, we've kind of adopted a hands-off policy. But that's not scriptural. Scriptural teaching is hands-on. right? There, there's a place where it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I'm not necessarily advocating that this morning. But, but I do want to just say that the idea of leave me alone, stay away from me, don't touch me, I'll gather for church by Facebook, I'll gather for church remotely, I'll listen to it, I won't be there, all of that, it, it, 
it has an effect on us. I understand there are people who cannot be here. Um, but I was talking with a pastor friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, and he said he's ready to just pitch the whole Facebook thing because half of his church is refusing to come in, though they could. He said they, they'll stay at home. And he said it's not healthy for the body, and he's absolutely right. If you can be among the brethren assembled, you need to be. That's important because we need the contact with one another. And it goes further than just being in the same room. There, there's a, a, a resonance that, that develops when the body loves on each other. There is a powerful presence that is here. And there is something that binds us together. And, and this idea of laying on of hands began, for us at least, with Jesus himself. Right? Jesus made it a practice when he was ministering to somebody to touch them. He put his hands on them. And it wasn't just limited to people that he was healing. Look at at the idea that this benediction came. Look at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 Pages all stick together. Mark chapter 10 and verse 16. Well, let's back up to verse 13. They brought the little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. And he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. And he took them up in his arms, and he laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. There is this idea of of actually a physical communication of an intended blessing. Now, I understand, as I mentioned before, that our culture is, is frivolous, in its pursuit of lawsuits. There is so much insanity about people saying, oh, you offended me, you hurt me, you did this, you did that. And I understand there's also been real abuses. So we have to tread a line carefully. But I think that it's important for us to understand that there is a human quality to a physical touch that is a necessary component of of ministry. There, there is a very human reality that binds us together when, when you actually touch somebody, when you, when you take their hand and pray with them, or, or you put a hand on a shoulder. There is an appropriate level of physical contact which is absolutely essential because we live in this world where we are so isolated by fear, we're isolated by our technology, we're isolated by our, our just our own desires. We don't want to be around people, it seems like. And that is not a healthy perspective for the church. We need to be desiring to be one with another in in every way that we possibly can. And prayer is always an inclusive activity, right? If you're going to pray with somebody, you are sharing intimate thoughts and intimate reality with them in a way that, that is probably the most intimate thing you can do with another person is to pray with them. You share your heart, you share your life, you share your mind, and and literally you share your soul. And the reality is the physical touch binds us together in ways that we don't fully comprehend. 
Even the smallest touch, when it is coupled with prayer, unites us in heart and spirit. It conveys honor. It conveys esteem. It conveys value. And it signals to the person who is being prayed for that they've already been blessed. Right? There, there is just something about this reality of, of prayer and a physical touch made, made real. And it, it makes what might be considered cold and of no effect into something that is both uniting and empowering. You, you ever see it in somebody's eyes? You say to them, oh, I'll pray for you. And they give you this look like, yeah, okay, whatever. But if you stop what you're doing right then, put a hand on a shoulder, hold a hand and say, Let, let's pray. And just pray with them. And it transforms that dynamic. It changes the way that's received. It changes the way that, that is, is seen and heard. And it turns what we know is real into something real in the minds of somebody who may not really get it. There's no doubt that when the culture hears somebody say, pray for this person, that the culture reacts with disdain and hatred. Oh, please, you're just going to pray. Do something real. I promise you. First of all, there's nothing more real than prayer. Amen. Okay? But I also promise you that if we would take the time where we have ability to actually engage with somebody in the act of prayer and put your hands on them and pray for them, give them blessing, if we would actually regain that teaching, that practice, it would transform how even lost people see it when somebody says, I'll pray for you. There there is power in this that we just have left lay in the gutter because the world and the culture has told us that we should. We need to be mindful of this. We need to be attentive to what God has called us to do. The, The scripture says the prayer of faith offered up by followers of Christ carries his authority. And part of that symbol is that touch. When Jesus brought the little children into his arms, he put his hands on them, he blessed them, he gave them his blessing. Well, if we are followers of Christ and we are his children, when we pray for somebody, when we put our hands on them and bless them, we convey that that blessing. We, We carry with us the authority of Christ to do that. And it has to be done with grace and with purity, right? There there are bounds and there are boundaries that we need to be mindful of. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. That means you guys know where it's appropriate to put your hands on somebody and where it's not appropriate to put your hands on somebody. Use your head. Be conscious of it. Right? Be mindful of it. But don't let the fear of what somebody else is going to think keep you from ministering Christ unto them. If you're feeling like this person's standoffish, ask. May I, may I put my hand on your shoulder and pray with you? Right? There's nothing wrong in asking that. And if they say, no, don't touch me, then okay, don't touch them. <laughs> but there is something powerful in this that we need to regain. There is something deeply strengthening about the act of actually praying with somebody. And the scripture commands it for those who are sick, right? Look at James chapter 5. James chapter 5, starting at verse 13. James puts it this way.
Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three, and a half, for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Right? So what's, what is the first line of, I'm sick, what are we supposed to do according to Scripture? Go to the doctor and take lots of drugs. That may be appropriate, but that's not what the Scripture tells us. The Scripture tells us, call the elders of the church, have us come pray over you, anointing you with oil, put our hands on you, put you know, oil. I'm not, I'm not going to get into all of that this morning. But, but there, is a, there is an appropriate measure of saying, God, I know that you are the one who heals. And, and whether we are worthy of it or not, God has given to the elders of the church authority and a responsibility to exercise that authority in a way that honors him. We're supposed to be doing this. We're supposed to be praying for each other actively. When somebody is ill, the elders of the church are supposed to be going to you at your request to be praying for you and to to anoint you with the oil and, and to ask God to heal you. There there is an appropriate measure of physical contact that is absolutely essential. And and remember that in the scripture, the the oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And it is this idea that we are to be praying and praying and praying that God would do his work. All the medicine in the world is not going to save anybody. All the medicine in the world is not going to heal anybody that God is not determined to heal. And God can heal anybody, no matter what medicine says. Remember, he is God, right? And sometimes I feel like we ourselves, the church, have forgotten that basic truth. Sometimes I feel like we, the church, have forgotten that God is exactly who he says he is. It seems like we're surprised when somebody gets better, (laughs) right? We've been praying for this guy with, with a tumor, and wow, it's, it's a miracle, and I can't believe that happened. Okay, well, <laughs> you can't believe that happened. That kind of tells us something about the prayer of faith. Right? This is part of what we need to be doing. We need to be more engaged. We need to be more actively pursuing this kind of engagement. Now, I want to shift gears with you here just a little bit. And I want to think with you about the context in which we find this discussion. I thought it was important for us in the midst of this culture and the days in which we live to address the fact that we don't need to leave behind the laying on of hands. Okay? We need to regain it. But we also need to think about the context of this statement in the book of Hebrews and what the letter to the Hebrews was about, right? 
What was the letter to the Hebrews about? It was about the fact that Christ has completed the Old Testament law and supersedes it in every aspect. And in the Old Testament law, there were these ideas about how sin was atoned for. And as an important component of that sin and its atonement, there was a laying on of hands that had nothing to do with prayer for the people, but with a confession of sin. So look with me at Leviticus chapter 13. I'm sorry, Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16, and um, we're going to start reading at verse 20. This is part of the practice of the Day of Atonement. Um, Remember that on the Day of Atonement, two goats were selected and brought in to be offered, and a lot was cast between them. One of them was to be the offering which was slain, and the other was to be something called the scapegoat. So we're going to pick it up with the dealing of the scapegoat at verse 20. When he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And he shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the iniquities of the children of Israel and all of their transgressions concerning all of their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. And he shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. And the goat shall bear on itself all of their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. What was going on here? Well, there was a sacrifice of atonement made. One of the goats was slain. Its blood was scattered. It was handled in the way that we have heard described in other places. But this second goat, this scapegoat, it was confessed over, hands laid on it, these are our sins, you are a representative, and then it was cast out of the camp. It was taken out into the wilderness where presumably it would die. It carried the iniquity away. What the scripture tells us is that Christ became both of these goats for us. He was not only the sacrifice that was slain, but he also became our scapegoat, bearing away our shame. Look at me at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, starting at verse 10. The writer of Hebrews tells us this. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Knowing therefore that we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, let us by him continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Remember that this is really the point of the whole letter to the Hebrews. The the old way of dealing with sin that was never adequate, 
How do we know it was never adequate? Well, first of all, Scripture plainly tells us that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Paul says that plainly in Galatians. But more than that, we can see that it is not adequate because how often did they have to do this? Every year. Over and over and over. And as we've been reading through Leviticus, what happens when a man told a lie and kept something that wasn't his or found something and didn't return it? What do you have to do? He had to offer a sacrifice. He had to bring in a ram that would be slain, and part of the sacrificial system was he would confess his sin over that ram, which was then slain, transferring his guilt to it so that God didn't smite him for his sin. And what if he did it again the next day? Guess what? He did it again the next day. He better be a very wealthy farmer because he's going to use a lot of his sheep. Right? The truth is, is that every single thing we did was an offense under the Old Testament law. That's why the Proverbs tells us that the plowing of the sin, plowing of the wicked is sin. Right? Everything you do is wrong if you are not found in Christ. Most of what we do in Christ is wrong, but it's covered by Christ, so that's okay. The the, the truth of the matter is, is we cannot live lives that are ever going to be good enough. And the Old Testament law was designed to teach us that fundamental lesson. It was designed to show us how desperately we needed a Savior, how desperately we needed a God who could forgive and who would forgive. So when Christ came and fulfilled the Old Testament law, becoming our sacrifice once for all, and was slain on our behalf and carried our guilt and our sin out of the city, and it's gone forever, why would we ever be so foolish as to think that we need to return to the law to somehow satisfy God? Beloved, The law has been completed. The moral law of God still stands. It demonstrates his attributes. But the moral law of God does not give us any way to resolve our errors. Did you ever notice that? Right? You look at the Ten Commandments. What does it give you? It gives you a basic guideline. This is who your God is. These are the things he loves. These are the things he hates. You want to keep in the narrow between these things. Right? It doesn't tell you what to do when you fail. That's not its purpose. Its purpose is to teach us our need for God and who He is. The Levitical law, that one gave you what to do when you failed. And that one has been satisfied. That one has been completed. That one has been taken care of in Christ. And for that reason, there is never any appropriate return to the Old Testament law. So when people tell you, oh, look, you want to live forever, eat the Old Testament ways, don't eat pig. Well, that is not what the Scripture is saying. Right? I don't have a problem with vegetarians. I I eat mostly vegetables myself. However... Let me tell you this plainly. It is not because of a misguided understanding of Scripture 
that says, I shall not eat those things. Because the scripture plainly says, do not call anything that I have declared clean, unclean. And God told Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And everything was in that cart. Everything was in that sheet. Everything. It said all manner of creeping things. So much so that Peter said to Jesus, I'm not going to do that, Lord. I've never had anything unclean in my life. I doubt that was true. However, he finally got the point. Don't declare anything that God has called clean, unclean. It is not our place to try and reinstitute the Old Testament law on any ground. Not diet, not Sabbath, not any of it. And I am a Sabbatarian. I believe that we should honor the Sabbath. And I believe that we should honor the Sabbath because it's part of the Ten Commandments and it tells us who God is. And I believe that we should honor the Sabbath because the principle of the Sabbath is that we are to give God this day so that we are honoring Him, so that our souls are refreshed, so that we are restored in our spirit and in our mind. But I am not ever going to be the one to tell you that if you end up breaking the Sabbath and do something you're not supposed to do, that you're going to go to hell and God's going to beat you up for it. Okay? Because the the do-it-or-die portion of the law that puts you back in the Levitical practices is done. Okay? The principles of the moral commandments still stand. And I promise you this, and then I'm going to go on because I'm not really preaching on the Sabbath today, but let's just say this. I promise you that if you will give to the Lord a day that He calls His own, Instead of doing all of your stuff, do his stuff and refresh your souls in him. You will find without question and without fail that your spirit is strengthened, your mind is refreshed, your soul is made better, your life will improve and you will find joy in the Lord. You know why I say that? Because the scripture promises that in Isaiah. It promises it. It is a very simple equation. Honor my day. Be refreshed in your soul. Don't honor my day. Burn yourself up. Burn yourself out. Wear yourself out. It's pretty simple. There are still realities of what happens when we get this wrong. But they are not connected to your salvation. The Old Testament law said, if you don't do everything I say and obey every single bit of this law, you have no hope. For us as Christians, God says, trust in me to atone for your sin. Don't pretend you don't have it. (laughs) Amen? Don't pretend that you're not failing. Don't pretend that you don't mess this up. Don't pretend that you don't need a Savior. You need a Savior. You need a Savior every day. Trust Him to deliver you. To balance that out, don't sin presumptuously. In other words, don't say to yourself, well, I can do this bad thing because I know Jesus will forgive it. Because when you do that, you trample the blood of the Savior underfoot. And that 
God will probably call to account on your life and say, you know what, let's have a conversation about that. And those conversations are always unpleasant. Okay? What we need to remember is that the old way of thinking about our sin and thinking about what it meant to lay hands on the scapegoat and to take our sin and place it on him, it's, it's gone. When we cast ourselves on Christ, we're literally doing that thing. We're, we're, we're laying our hands on him. We're, we're casting ourselves upon him and saying, Lord, take my guilt. Give me your righteousness. And he does it. He does it. And he does it completely. And he does it fully. And he does it in such a way that everything about us is changed. Because he gives us his spirit. And he gives us his presence. And he gives us his person. And he gives us this heart which doesn't see the world in the same way anymore. Right? We still struggle with sin. We still fail. We still fall down. But it's no longer our one desire. There is no longer a hunger to do only what we want to do. Instead, there is a hunger to live in a way that pleases God. All right, so we talked a little bit about calling the elders to to come and to pray for you. But I want to just mention to you that that's practice that went on throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. Jesus himself, when he was praying for people to be healed, he touched them. Luke 4, 40 said, When the sun was setting, those who had any were sick with various diseases, brought them to him. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Carried on in the apostolic age, Mark 16, 18 says, They'll take up servants, serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Acts 28.8 says it happened after the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed. He laid his hands on him and healed him. We, we see this, again, this level of appropriate touch, this level of, of being a part of something. So, What is it that we are to take from this instruction about laying on of hands, touching somebody, praying for them, praying with them? It is this idea of community. It is the idea that we as the church are to be united together deeply, profoundly, purposefully. There is a There is a unity that is brought to us. This is why the idea of laying hands on somebody when they're ordained to the ministry is an important part as well. Because what that is, is the the other elders, the body itself, gathers together and says, I confirm that this person has the gifts and the ability and the calling of God to go and do this. There is that issue of authority. There is that issue of blessing. There is that issue wherein we say, you know what? We are affirming what you are saying that, that you're feeling led to do. You don't just get up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to go pastor a church. Well, some people do. <laughs> it doesn't mean you have to go to seminary. It doesn't mean that you have to be formally taught and formally trained. But it does mean that there needs to be some confirmation from the body 
that you have the gifts and the ability, and the body says, you know what, I, I see that calling in you. I see that, that purpose in you. This is why when they, they set out the deacons, they said, choose from yourself seven men full of the Spirit who, who have good abilities of management, and we will ordain them. We will set them apart as ministers to, to do the things that we don't have time to do as the apostles. And what the scripture tells us is that they did this, they laid hands on them, they prayed over them, and they set them out to do that work. This is why Paul communicates to Timothy, remember the gift that's that's upon you by the laying on of my hands, right? It wasn't that Paul conveyed some sort of power to Timothy, it's that Paul affirmed what God had done in him. That Paul said, "I I have seen this giftedness that is in you, the church has affirmed this, And we need to do this. So the idea of the Old Testament practice of laying on of hands is finished. But there is much newness which comes into the practice that we need to retain. We need to be aware that what God calls us to be as the body is united in every way. And the reality of physical touch, the reality of of putting your hands on somebody in, in blessing, in benediction in affirmation of their gift and callings, in whatever it might be, it has the singular effect of drawing us together. It's a remarkable thing. When, when you pray with somebody and you, you take their hand and you're praying with them, it has this effect of actually binding you together. And this, this purpose also carried with it Not only the affirmation of the gifts and calling for somebody going into the ministry, but it also carried with it this dynamic of welcome to the body, right? When when somebody says, you know, I'm, I'm a new Christian, I'm a part of this now, we baptize them, we bring them into the body, there is this, this initiation, this welcoming in, and there should be among that the hand of fellowship. There should be among that a willingness to say we are one with another. We, we, we share in our burdens, we share in our lives, we share in what's going on. And this unity that binds us together has with it this, this act of laying on of hands, this, this blessing which is a part of it. Look, I feel like I'm all over the board this morning. I'm sorry. But, but I just need to... I'm trying to articulate this fact. We cannot isolate ourselves from one another. And I know that that is 100% against everything the culture is screaming at you right now. But we cannot isolate ourselves one from another. We need unity. We need cohesiveness. We need to be bound together in every way possible. And something as simple as as just shaking somebody's hand or holding their hand while you pray or putting a hand on somebody's shoulder or a hug, these things are powerful to bind us together. They're powerful to help us be united in every way. And they are something that God says is good for the body to do. Beloved, this this is really simple. But at the same time, for some, it's really hard. 
I, I just want to contend for this. I want to contend that you at least think about it. Right? Ponder it a little bit. Chew it over. Ask yourselves the question. Am I better six feet away? Or am I better with people in my life that I'm willing to put my hands on and say, I love you. And I'm glad that God brought you into my life. Because in the midst of everything else that we've seen in the last two years, if we have learned nothing else, I hope we've learned that isolation kills people. Right? The people that have been most hard hit by, by the actions of our culture, not the, not the sickness, but the actions of our culture. Nursing homes locked down so that they can't see their family. People that are so afraid, they just hole up and hide for years. This destroys people's souls. It destroys their minds. It destroys their bodies. It destroys them in ways that can be resolved so simply. If we would just say, you know what? I love you, and I am committed to you, and these are not just words. Here's a hand. Right? There's power in that. And, And in the midst of everything else that we're doing, in the midst of all of our busyness, in the midst of all of our work, if we forget the simple element of the human touch, we miss out on something fundamentally important and profoundly beautiful. It matters. It matters. The writer of Hebrews is not telling us to abandon touching people by saying, let us move past the laying on of hands. That's not his point. And I don't, haven't heard anybody try to theologically make the point that that excuses our isolationism. I'm sure somebody will. <laughs> but I think that it's an appropriate reminder for us in this age that whether we articulate it or not, it's what we've done. We've cut ourselves off. And we've cut everybody else off too. And we need to be mindful of the fact that unity and this binding together of our hearts in love is probably going to be our greatest tool to fight against the darkness. I think I read somewhere Jesus saying something about how they'll know we're Christians. In that we what? That we love, right? In that we have love one for another. This dynamic needs to change. And I'm not 100% sure how to proceed with that change. But I am sure that together we can figure it out. I am sure that there is something powerful and beautiful 
that we need to reclaim. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace. And I pray, God, that in the midst of this day, you would impress on us the power and the glory and the beauty of what it means for the body to love each other. Father, help us to be bound together in Christ. And give us a regard for the simple touch, for the hand of fellowship. Give us regard, God, for these things that unite us. And help us to love each other in a way that translates to truth to a watching world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.